How fitting it is that today on Armed Forces Day we have with us a true American hero. Jeremiah Denton was a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and served on ships and many types of aircraft, served as a staff officer during his Navy career. He also served as a test pilot and a flight instructor, squadron leader, and student at the Armed Forces Staff College and the Naval War College, where he received the President's Award for the Most Outstanding Master's Thesis. In June of 1965, he began flying combat missions in Vietnam. On July 18th, he was shot down during an attack on enemy installations and spent the next seven years, seven and a half years, in several North Vietnamese prisoner of war camps. He was promoted to the rank of captain while imprisoned. Senator Denton provided the first direct evidence of torture by the North Vietnamese, and he did so by blinking in Morse code the word torture during a televised interview before which he had been warned by his captors to behave politely. In an age sorely in the need of heroes, at a time dominated by the cult of the anti-hero, we have a great one with us today. Upon his release in 1973, he demonstrated that the long imprisonment had not broken his spirit. Upon landing in the Philippines, he made the following statement seen widely on television. Quote, we are honored to have had the opportunity to serve our country under difficult circumstances. We are profoundly grateful to our Commander-in-Chief and to our nation for this day. God bless America. Since his retirement from active service at the rank of Rear Admiral, Senator Denton has been active in public affairs. He has especially emphasized throughout his public service life the importance and the relationship between family strength and national morality and the defense of civilization. In 1980, he was elected to the United States Senate from Alabama and served there until 1987. While in the Senate, he served on the Judiciary Committee, the Committee of Labor and Human Resources, and the Armed Services Committee. These committee assignments enabled him to pursue the interconnection between moral strength and the security and well-being of our society. In December of 1981, he became chairman of the board of the United Families of America, a national grassroots lobbying group specializing in family issues. In his beautifully powerful book, When Hell Was in Session, he wrote as follows. Although I have lived far from a perfect life, my heart and soul belong to God, country, and family long before the Navy got hold of me. My religious upbringing and my mother's strong influence shaped my character. Further on, my principal battle with the North Vietnamese was a moral one, and prayer was my prime source of strength. The strength of our nation is more than a material strength. We are a strongly moral people, and our country is based on spiritual strength. Lose that, and we lose everything." End quote. He's received numerous military decorations. I will list a few. He received the Navy Cross, the Department of Defense Distinguished Service Medal, 
the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, three Silver Stars, the Distinguished Flying Cross, five Bronze Stars, two Air Medals, two Purple Hearts, the Combat Action Ribbon, and numerous combat theater campaign and occupation awards. His book, When Hell Was in Session, was published in 1976 and tells in a powerful way the story of his imprisonment. Senator Denton is married to the former Jane Murray and has seven children and 14 grandchildren. We are deeply honored this day to present to you a true American hero. Senator, for your devotion to the Catholic faith and devotion to our country, we are honored to present to you the Christendom College Pro Deo et Patria Award for God and Country. unaware that there are more heroes, heroes and heroines out there looking up at me than I am. Mr. President, Mr. Chairman, Father Saunders, faculty, staff, fam family of faculty and staff, alumni, friends, families of everybody in the community and graduating seniors, We'll tell you guys when you're having fun, okay? <laughs> you want to get out of here. You've already done what you came to do, and God bless you for it. I think it was Sir Thomas More who said, the respect of a good man is worth more than the world's praise. And after you hear me talk, you'll understand why I so deeply appreciate this coming from you guys. What a college. Thank you for the God and Country Award. And as you will hear from my talk, it's sort of the theme of my talk. Hopefully, the theme of your lives, as it has been mine. It's difficult to imagine what other event now taking place anywhere in the world is more pleasing to our blessed Lord. Or what event? bodes more favorably for the future of our country. This commencement ceremony presents a tableau replete with proofs that the Christendom College Community of Souls devotes itself totally to knowing, loving, and serving God. Can it not be said that the synthesized mission of the curriculum and the spirit of the college are aimed at furthering progress toward each of the petitions, each of the goals Jesus himself included in the Lord's Prayer. He lived and died to bring souls to his Father and told us how to pray to achieve that. 
and how to will to achieve that. Think of those seven phrases of petition and think of the ways of time, the, the time and the emphases placed here to further progress toward those seven goals. Christendom instills that prayer, enhances progress toward each of those seven aspirations it expresses. And my principal consciousness this morning is that once in America, many colleges could make the same claim. Today, the list is tiny indeed. I can't express my profound admiration for those responsible for founding, nurturing, attending, and maintaining this great college with its contributions to God and country so vitally needed today. I refer to America knowing that the church is Catholic and it's inappropriate to be too nationalistic in dealing with our church. But we all know America has been the most influential nation in the world now for quite some generations, and the state of American morality influences world events. So the health of the church in America is globally important. Since joining the Navy at the age of 17, I've been caught up in the issues regarding the security and well-being of this country. And of course, both of those, security and well-being, depend so strongly upon the spirit of America and like many Americans with my grayness of hair, I've seen that spirit change. Some of the changes have been good, some have been bad. I'm not qualified to judge them all, but there is one unfortunate change which I do identify clearly and it obsesses me the last several years, since I came home to be precise, because that's when the change became so shockingly evident to me. When I returned in February 1973, having been uh, away from home for eight years, I was uh, shocked. I didn't know what an X-rated movie was when I returned. I'd never heard of a massage parlor except in the original rather innocent sense. But as we drove through downtown Norfolk, Virginia, to the hospital, my wife and I, where I was to receive my uh, rehabilitation, recuperation, the streets of Norfolk were full of both. And I had asked her, what, what's a triple X movie? What is a massage parlor? Why are there so many massage parlors? In 1965, when I was shot down, the only risque magazine was Playboy, and you wouldn't see it on the United States Navy magazine rack. When I got to the hospital, I saw that and all of the other hustlers and so on. Abortion had not been legal when I was shot down. Drug use was rare. The divorce rate and child abuse rates were a fraction of those in 1973. And I hated to believe that the propaganda movies and tapes they played to us had indeed taken place in the United States in terms of the so-called anti-war, anti-culture, anti-authority moods which arose and were so violently expressed. I went into cultural shock to the dismay of my wife, I guess, because she expected me to just be happy having returned home and I was 18 inches off the ground trying to save the world for a while in the Navy 
and my seniors encouraged me to do that. I made speeches all over the country about that, and I, they didn't criticize me, they encouraged me. But I knew the Navy wasn't the most effective um, forum for that, so I got out, got interested in private uh, 501c3 organizations to help, finally decided to go political for a while and went to the Senate and did my best. And I have many friends in this area and some in this audience who know me and I know them from those times. And I relish the memory of our fighting in the trenches together on that. Christendom College was deliberately founded in that time frame and for about the same reasons, I suppose, that I felt the shock. Today's graduates, by design of the college founders, are the best kind of human resources possible to be thrown into that fray, into that war. And oh, how you are needed. The bad guys have had the upper hand. They've gained the upper hand. We're now the counterculture of this formerly one nation under God. For a few minutes, let me offer some thoughts on the nature of that war. Your part in it, my part in it. I offer them humbly because I've never recalled one single word said at the commencement addresses in high school or the United States Naval Academy. <laughs> but as I am now different from when I graduated from high school and college, so are you different from the graduates of those days. The spiritual air in our country, which you observe and sniff, is poisonously polluted. You're aware of it. Your education has everything to do with it. And I so glory in what is that. We share a great deal in spite of our age difference because of that similarity of view I know we have. And I'm still very immature. I'll never get beyond about 18, I guess. <laughs> I really enjoyed the fun last night <laughs> just to be with you guys. But the biggest thing we share is the most important secret people can share. We both know that if we have everything except Jesus, we have nothing. We both know if we have Jesus and nothing else, we have everything. It's a pretty important secret. <clears throat> and you learned it through more meritorious means than I did. I learned it through unavoidable coincidence. I learned it in over four years of solitary confinement. I was the first military prisoner of the United States to enjoy four years of solitary confinement. A lot of torture sessions and almost eight years of deprivation and suffering. But I didn't volunteer for any of that. All I did was encounter it and do the thing that is irresistible for a human being to do. That inner voice crying out, Abba, springs forth from you spontaneously, no matter what your previous uh, moral orientation. God, help me. I prayed. God answered. 
He answered in such gracious, generous, and amazing ways as he always does to desperate prayers. In some way, he answers them. And I felt intense gratitude. And the repetition of that process changed my faith in God to knowledge of God. I didn't deserve it. I just went through it. And I learned the secret. I'll give you just a couple of examples of how that secret was learned in, in specific detail. One night in the middle of the four years they were tor torturing us, I was blindfolded, handcuffed, and taken to another camp with 10 other guys to a place called Alcatraz. We were very proud later of that honor because they had said they were going to take the most obnoxious, <laughs> uncorrectable guys who were leading the others to resist them to a severe place and just leave them there. Well, they did, and they also tortured us off and on there. And uh, I'm proud of that, as the others are. As I was taken up to the cell, and, and my blindfold was looked, taken off, I looked into the cell, and I really panicked. I said, God, if you put me in here, if you let me stay in here overnight, I'll go nuts. I'm claustrophobic. The cell had 47 inches by 47 inches to romp around in. It had a concrete elevated portion where I could only go at night on the pallet in, in which I slept. There was no window. There was a, a, a steel uh, sheet over the top of the door with holes poked in it for air. And that was it. And there was about a five-watt bulb and lots of spiders and bugs and things. And I thought, Lord, <laughs> you've helped me, but... I don't think you can help me enough to get me through this for one night. I was there well over two years. I was in irons 17 hours every day. Every day except Sunday, I got out five minutes to wash and dump my bucket and then clean up the latrine where they all dumped their buckets. I was given that honor, and I used it to scrape out orders and, and, and news in, in code with my broom, which they could hear. But in that two years in having to give myself and beg God to come to me, and he did. And I was closer to Jesus, and Jesus was closer to me in that over two years. I probably enjoyed an oblivion, a serenity, a joy in those years that would boggle your mind. I can't even describe it. It's the closest I've ever been since to God. So, you know, I didn't volunteer for any of that. Once I had a voice come to me when I was in near despair, and it was, it's more real than my knowledge of my own name. It said, in the utter silence of the prison at the time, and when I was near despair, and I didn't ask for it, I was just saying, Lord, I, I'm beginning to believe we'll be here forever. I'm not sure I can keep myself together. I can't pray effectively anymore. I'd said all the rosaries and all the prayers that I knew, they were effective, but at this point I was about out. And a voice came. And it said, say, sacred heart of Jesus, I give myself to you. Now, you can think I'm kooky, or you can think I invented that, or that it really didn't happen. I was dreaming, but no, I was in the most alert stage possible, which happened during the quiet times there, and, and you were just plain thinking as well as you could. I first thought it was Jesus. I thought that 
for years. Now it might have been an angel, but it was a voice, and it said those things, and it didn't say, I give myself to thee. It said, I give myself to you, familiar. That devotion to the Sacred Heart works. The devotion to the Rosary works. God likes the Catholic Church. <laughs> Another time when I was, I'd been tortured for five days, five nights, I decided I'd pretend to give in because I, I knew they didn't want to kill me, and I was near enough to death uh, to give them some stuff they already knew. They wanted to know about camp communications. I was running the camp. It was a very intense, complex battle. If I had told them about those things, it would have really hurt our resistance. And next to prayer, communication among ourselves was the most consoling thing as well as the most contributory thing to our, our, our discipline and order, our morale. So I, I pretended I, I was giving up, and uh, they came and let me loose. I, they brought me to the quiz, and I was, I was telling them things they already knew, such as when a guard walks a prisoner by my door, the prisoner pretending to talk to the Vietnamese uh, is really, who doesn't understand English, is really passing on information uh, to me or whomever he's passing in those cells. They knew that. I told them a few other things like that. I thought they were going to let me go. No, they put me back in. I won't describe the rig to you, but it's pretty painful. I was out of feeling except in my back. And when it came to five more days and nights, I, could, I was hardly able to, to be a human being. I was hardly able to think. But I thought this thought, God, I've offered every prayer, every solicitation I can. I've worded it by recited prayers, by my own uh, impromptu making up words. I have no more facility, no capacity to ask you anything else. If you want to do something, it's all yours. I'm yours. Immediately, I felt no more pain. Immediately, I was in a chill at this time. I was going between chills and fever. I felt a warm blanket of comfort. I felt total immunity from any kind of harm, any kind of problem in the world. The guard came in about... Um, Fifteen minutes later, with the camp commander behind him, and I learned from the South Vietnamese what they were saying to one another, a prisoner, but I knew what they were saying anyway. The, the, the camp commander was telling the guard to go back in there in this rig and pull on a rope with another guard until he broke my legs or kill me, but get him to break. So they came in, got on this little rig, started pulling the rope, putting the iron bar. It had gone about halfway through my Achilles tendons by then. And I couldn't feel anything anyway. But at any rate, at this point, I felt this tremendous immunity from fear. I, I, no one, nothing in this world could hurt me. And the guard looked in my face as he started to pull on the, on the chain and saw that message, which said, Smiley, we called him. He's an 18-year-old kid, pretty good guy. He's just doing his duty. What are you doing? You're not going to hurt me. You can't hurt me anymore, and you know I'm not going to break. Smiley's face just instantaneously changed. He went outside, he dropped the rope, which let the pressure off me, went outside and screamed over and over to the camp commander, I'm not going to do anything more to him. There's no, no purpose in it. He won't break, and why should we kill him? And they came in and put sulfur on my wounds and moved me about four hours later to another part of the camp. 
St. Lawrence back there, I used to think he was a little bit stretching it when he said, <laughs> turn me over, I'm done on this side. <laughs> but I learned that St. Lawrence and I and you can do that. God's doing it. You, on the other hand, hadn't learned it that way. Now, there are people in this room who have, older people, and perhaps some of you who have been through that kind of suffering by which you utterly surrender yourself to God in sort of an emotional pinnacle of your life. And he responds in this amazing way. But what have you done? You have access to a place where you can learn the truth. And you care about good and evil, and you care about the truth. You've searched for it. To a great degree, you found it, and you know the secret. You earned it. To the degree that you know it, you earned it. I didn't. But you still have some earning to do. You have to do what's required in gratitude for knowing the secret. Now, as I said, many others here, the difficult childbirth, trying to raise kids, kids in school having problems, there are all, ways, all kinds of ways to suffering. You don't have to be in a POW camp, and I don't claim uh, any uh, uniqueness in that respect. But back to the nature of what I said I was going to talk about, today's war. In national terms, and this is all related to what I've just said, the central core of the issue is whether America chooses to return to its valid, indispensable founding thesis or continue to abandon it. It's important. Simply put, we were founded as one nation under God. There are two revolutionary notions involved here. The war, the military part, was not the revolution. The political part was the revolution. The awareness on the part of our founding fathers of a secret. A little bit different kind of secret, but very allied to the one we've talked about already. Think of what our founding fathers did. The first notion is uh, if you discard uh, what happened before uh, Christianity, and you don't necessarily have to discard it. Because there were Aztecs who believed in a god, uh, they thought that the ruler somehow got some rights from God and then the people got their rights from the ruler. That was true, you know, uh, from way back uh, in, in Judeo-Christian uh, belief. God, king, man. God writes to the king, king gives the rights to the people, and everybody's sort of happy if the king listens to God and so on. Well, our guys said, no, no, we, we can make it looser than that. We can say that all men are created equal, etc. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, not by the king, not by government. And then in the Constitution, when it spread out, it spelled out that the government's going to be at the pleasure of and the choice of the people. So it went God went from God, king or ruler, man, from to God, man, government, and that trinium. An amazing revolution which emblazoned the intellects of people all over the world when they saw that happen. And what were they flying in the face of? Why hadn't they done that much before? Granted that England had had a parliament and there had been German and other efforts in Europe to democratize to some degree. But our guys went a long way past that. And they did it in spite of what Socrates and Plato's experience were in Athens, which was the big experiment of democracy. And I guess you guys have read The Republic. So 
you saw what happened then, and you know, if you start reading some of the things that happened, you'd look at what today's papers and see about the same thing happening. The problem in Socrates' day was that they didn't realize what Washington realized and Jefferson and the other guys who founded us. They thought that just plain philosophizing about what people should do would be enough to instill enough political correctness, float democracy in spite of the threat of people running amok and doing what they do when they're too free without any morality. They had gods, but they didn't have any gods big on the two requisites for floating democracy, compassion and self-discipline. None of their gods, they were big on the hunt, fertility and making love and all that, but not too big on compassion and self-discipline. Our guys inherited a people who had fled from Europe in persecution, suffered, suffered on the voyage over here, suffered on the shores of this country against the climate and the Indians, and believed in God the way you do under pressure. They believed that they can't, in their religion, get a ticket to the non-smoking section for the long trip unless they love their neighbor as they love themselves. And the Ten Commandments of which that's just a summation. And they believed it deeply. And Washington knew that morality was necessary for democracy. And he also realized that the only source of morality was a deeply held religion. Listen to how it was said by George Washington. I asked your two political science professors last night if they'd mind my quoting this, and they encouraged me to. But listen to it carefully. We used to memorize it, and it didn't mean anything because we didn't have to know it. But now we have to know it. Now we have to understand what is established by these words. He said in his farewell address, the most important thing he ever probably said in his life, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, Religion and morals are indispensable supports. Let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar stature, both reason and experience forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail an exclusion of religious principle. We had one other big problem. We've got a problem now in that we're throwing that, not, not just the principle out. But let's look at the difference between the crisis today and the crisis of the Civil War. What happened there? Well, we just didn't, we threw out one principle of our thesis. All men are created equal. We had a war about it. Lincoln was asked what caused the war. Here's what he said. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us, and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all those blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. That was one principle. We've also now abandoned the inalienable right to life. Those are principles under the thesis, but now we are throwing the whole thesis out. We're not saying that God has a place in our government when they said it was an indispensable place.
those are principles under the thesis, but now we are throwing the whole thesis out. We're not saying that God has a place in our government when they said it was an indispensable place when they founded this country. First the culture threw it out, then the courts threw it out, then the legislature threw it out, and now the executive department is really creaming it and throwing it out. I established bills which are based on God in the Senate. The adolescent family life bill, a girl could get sex education, her parents a pastor, and so on. You could talk about the Ten Commandments, you could talk about chess. You can't do that anymore. This is across the entire field of political action now. There's an effort to bring it back, but it's kind of around uh, the central issue. It's, we can win it, but you guys are going to have to have to win it. I'm an old coach. It probably won't happen while I'm still here. Many souls will suffer unless we can restore this as one nation under God. Many men who lived and died for their country will be betrayed. Our posterity will be denied the benefits we had. There's always moral crisis, as our young brilliant speaker said. And perhaps Jesus' choice of dying on a cross was significant. Crisis and cross are linguistically related. Our cross today is to take the pains and their and you will suffer, to restore our blessed country as one nation under God. Never has there been an audience more engaged in doing that and caring about that than you here today. I salute you all, especially you graduates. I know God will continue to bless you and this college and therefore continue to bless this country. It's been a tremendous lift for me to be with you because I'm kind of tied up in this. I do love you.